This is a complicated topic and we have a short amount of time. So my name is Ann Chaitovitz and I'm an attorney advisor at the United States Patent and Trademark Office. And we have a very distinguished group of panelists and I'm going to actually ask them to each give a brief, brief introduction, 30 seconds or less. Hi, I'm Lisa Alter. I'm an attorney specializing in copyright, and I do a tremendous amount of my work in the copyright termination area, both on the side of songwriters and artists, as well as some analytic work for music publishers who are the recipient of termination notices, and my firm is based in New York. Also, just want to note, I've got a handout at the end of that table, which people can pick up later, which has a brief summary of copyright termination. I'm Dave Costner. I'm an attorney at Council LLP. I started off my career as a musician, was a co-founder at IOTA, managed some bands, now primarily represent musicians and labels and publishers in the entertainment fields. Hi, Stephanie Taylor. I'm from Nashville, Tennessee at Bone McAllister Norton. I'm the head of the entertainment division there. In my past life, I was a country fiddle player and a classical violinist. But I was called to this life of practicing law because my goal is to help artists, songwriters, and entrepreneurs make a living making music. There's my elevator speech. Good to see you. <laughs> so we have this great panel, and I'm going to start actually by giving a brief overview of the area just because it is very complicated. So I'll explain the background so you can then understand what we're talking about in the discussion. So the copyright law contains a termination provision permitting authors and their heirs to terminate copyright transfers and licenses that were made by the author after 35 years. So the reason for this is Congress actually intended to give authors a second bite at the apple because Congress knew of the unequal bargaining power that authors have and because the value of the work isn't known until after the work is exploited. Now section 203 of the copyright law applies to transfers executed after January 1st, 1978 and 35 years later takes us to 2013. So we are coming up on that date. Now, Section 304 sets out forth the procedures for older works, and they're not the subject to our discussion. So even though the works were created earlier, those works, they do have a termination period. It's 56 years, but that is governed by Section 304. And for sound recordings, the first time that will take effect is 2028 because you have to remember sound recordings did not get copyright protection until 1972. So for musical compositions, they've been able to terminate under 304 since 1978. But for sound recordings, that won't happen until 2028. But we're gonna be focusing on works that were created after January 1st, 1978. So critically, this termination right applies to any work other than a work made for hire. And that's why it's so important to determine whether a sound recording was a work made for hire. Because obviously if it was a work made for hire, it's not terminable. If it's not a work made for hire, the artist, the author can get back their copyrights. So copyright law defines work for hire in two ways. The first is an employee within the scope of their employment. So for example, a computer programmer who's on staff at Microsoft and is programming computer code, well, Microsoft owns that. 
if they're writing a book about programming on the weekend, that's not in the scope of their employment and the programmer would own that. Now the second prong is a specially ordered or commissioned work in one of nine specifically enumerated types of work if there's a writing designating it as a work made for hire. So there are nine categories listed and most of those categories listed have a lot of authors, things like a movie where there's a lot of people who contribute or an encyclopedia where everybody writes a section. Notably, sound recordings are not an enumerated category. They're not listed. However, compilations and collective works are listed there. Now, agreeing that something is a work made for hire will not make it a work for hire. It still has to be one of those enumerated categories. So recording artists' contracts have language that they're an independent contractor. They have language that it's a work made for hire. And of course, you know, they have belt and suspenders language. There's language that says, and if it's not a work made for hire, you're transferring your copyright. So as I said before, if a sound recording is a work made for hire, the transfer cannot be terminated. Now, since this will really only have, a, have an impact where the work is still of value 35 years after it was created, this isn't going to affect a whole lot of rights. It's going to affect some important artists and some seminal works, but it's not going to affect you know, every work. So can a sound recording be a work made for hire? Let's go back to the definition. First, if it's an employee. And the Supreme Court has listed 13 categories, your basic agency categories, you know, who provides the tools, do they tell you where to work, you know, do they deduct taxes, things like that to see whether a person is an employee. I don't think that the featured artists will satisfy the employee prong. Court looks at things like taxes withheld, you know, location of work. Back in the day in 78, you know, A, the, the labels did have studios. She went to work there, different now. Um, so it's also very fact specific. And labels are very unlikely to claim that artists meet that first prong because they're gonna have a huge tax liability if they do because they've been paying people like independent contractors and not deducting and not paying social security. So I don't think they're gonna go there. So the real crux of our discussion today is, does a sound recording fit into one of the categories that's enumerated in the second definition? So are sound recordings compilations or collective works? Because sound recordings themselves are not listed. The first thing I'm going to do is actually ask Lisa to give overview about how an author terminates a transfer and the timeline to terminate the transfers because the timeline has already started for 1978 works. Okay, so we are focusing on section 203 terminations today, but I just want to make um, a plug for section 304C. Number one, yes, for sound recordings, under current law, section 304C will not become relevant for a long time, but there is some talk about retroactive federal copyright protection for 
sound recordings. If that does happen, there will be debate. There already is debate about whether those sound recordings given retroactive federal copyright protection. Pre-72 sound recordings are generally protected under state law, ironically, for much longer than they would have been under federal law. Um, but if there is retroactive protection passed, there will be a debate over whether or not those sound recordings would be able to enjoy, um, the authors of those sound recordings would be able to enjoy termination rights. So 304C in the sound recording area may indeed become relevant, and it's certainly relevant um, for on, on the songwriter end, on the song end. But we're going to talk about Section 203 today. And Section 203, and simplified it a little bit, actually the termination window, which is a five-year window during which authors or the heirs of deceased authors can get their rights back, begins on the earlier of 35 years after publication of the work or 40 years from the contract, if the contract includes the right of publication and releasing a record is publication of that record. So that becomes relevant. So for example, if you had a 1980 um, multiple year deal with a label where there are albums delivered over the course of however long it takes to prepare the five years or a five-year period, you might have an album that comes out in 1982. So you would start counting your 35 years out from 1982, not 1980. If you had an album that was delivered in 1986, then maybe 40 years from 1980, if I'm doing the math right in my head, would be sooner than 35 years from 1986. So you would then go to the date of the contract. Except so, uh, there's that rub now from the Copyright Office um, position on the termination gap. The Copyright Office. So that's for, well, that's let, me, for let me get, that's for, pre, that's for pre-1978 <laughs> contracts. But, but, but their position generally that a work cannot be transferred until it is created, right. and that's overall. Right. So, so that so, might throw. So, a, so that that is another thing. <laughs> reason why you would look. Don't don't just say anything before 1978 is not relevant for Section 203 because if you had a 1976 record deal that continued for a number of years, your grant is 1976. Technically, since it's a pre-1978 grant, it does not come within the purview of Section 203. However, your album is not created and delivered until 1980. And the Copyright Office, and, and, and I think very rightly so, has said you can't have a grant of that record before it exists. So you look at the date of creation in 1980, and you start counting from then and either you know, from the creation date, the earlier 40 years from the creation date, or 35 years of publication, which will probably be roughly around the same time. So that's, that's known as the gap issue. It has not been fixed legislatively, but it is fixed by practice and opinion, and I think is pretty good practice now, but you'll still have some labels arguing if you deliver a termination notice based on a 1980 record under a 1976 contract. So that's a sub-issue. Um, that I don't want to get bogged down on and we won't get to what I'm supposed to talk sorry, about, sorry. which is the process. So the process is, in order to recapture rights during this very limited five-year period, and it's limited by lobbying efforts back in the day, mostly by music publishers and book publishers who didn't want um, authors to have unlimited rights to get their works back, they made it difficult. You have to serve notice in a very precise time and manner, and you have to serve notice no earlier than 10 years 
before the first possible date of termination, which is the beginning of that five-year window, which let's say is exactly 35 years after the date of publication, not the December 31st of that year, the actual date of publication or the actual date of the contract, if you're using the contract as your measuring period, and no later than two years prior to the last possible date, again, very date-specific on the fifth year out in that window. Notice must be served on the grant, original grantee or the successor if that grantee has assigned rights and multiple times, you know, in record deals, by the time you get that far down the road, there have been, you know, rights handed on from label to label. It is okay to serve on the current owner. If, however, you're representing the author, you might want to serve on the original owner as well, or parties along the way, if you're not privy to those deals on the off chance that rights were retained along the way. If you want to get everything back, you want to make sure you serve on anybody who owns anything. Notice, if the original contract was signed by more than one author, and this is unique to 203, this is not the case for 304C, the majority of those authors have to sign the notice of termination or if anyone's dead, they're heirs, which means that if you have a band that's, that signs a record deal, a four-member band, you need at least three of them to come together to serve notice of termination. And that, again, was, I think, intentionally crafted to make it more difficult to terminate. Um, if the author is dead, then the statute defines who can serve in the author's place. If the author leaves a, a, just a spouse and no children, the spouse owns the termination right. If there's a spouse and kids, then you need a majority. That means you need the spouse and at least one of the children to serve a termination notice. The children alone or the spouse alone can't serve, generally not a big deal, unless you think about the music business <laughs> and the fact that the spouse at time of death may well not be the mother of any or, or all of those kids. And trust me, there are many things in the songwriting area that I've seen, I've been doing over the years a lot in the songwriting area, where rights are not terminated because the spouse doesn't want to acknowledge the illegitimate kid. Mm -hmm. and, but the kid has proved fraternity and therefore is a you know, party that has to be signatory to that termination notice. Um, if there are, if a, one child is dead or more, you know, a child is dead, then the, that child's children take that child's share and have to serve in that child's place if they're a necessary signatory. And if there are no spouse, children, or grandchildren, then the author's executor, trustee, or legal representative can sign. I can tell you that's new, relatively new, in the life of the copyright law. Before the Sonny Bono Act in, in um, the late 90s, it was no spouse, children, or grandchildren, you're out, no termination notice, which obviously was egregiously unfair for all kinds of reasons why someone might die without any of those, especially in those days. So that was one of the cool fixes that happened in the Sonny Bono Act from an artist's point of view. So notice must be served in writing. You generally serve it return receipt requested, so you have proof of service, and then you have to record that in the copyright office. And in your notice, you have to be very specific about what you're terminating, what what you're reclaiming back, what the con what the grant is that's being terminated. To the extent that you can be more specific, the better. All the people in the songwriting area have traditionally done very broad statements of what's being terminated. Again, specificity is always good with a catch-all and anything else that we might have signed along the way. 
and who the grant, who the parties are, who the parties are that are serving notice, and what their how they represent um, the percentages that they represent of the termination class of people, and then what the effective date of termination is. And again, the f the effective date, the date termination happens, has to be at least two years out and no more than 10 years out. And then when you get back your little green return receipt, and once that ends and we have no mail, I don't know what we're <laughs> gonna do, but when you get back proof that they've re received the notice, I would not email a notice, you then record that in the copyright office. And recordation is an, also an essential part of termination. You have to say what section you're terminating under. I have represented public music publishers who have gotten termination notices, which would be great, except that instead of saying they were terminating under 203, they said they were terminating under 304C, which might be enough to kick it out. Mm -hmm. I've seen termination notices as recently as last week where the effective date was less than two years out, invalid. I've seen termination notices with multi, you know, multi-authors sign the same contract and there is not a majority of them. People make mistakes on terminations all the time and it's actually getting worse now that people are sort of vaguely learning about terminations. If you're representing the party that's served by a notice of termination, therefore, look at it very carefully. Don't just say, oh shit, we're gonna renegotiate and sign it back. You've gotta look at it and say, is this properly done? And maybe if it's improperly done, is the error something that the copyright office would deem in harmless error and therefore let it slide through? Or is it a more important error, in which case, let's do the math. If I'm the recipient, I can say, I'm not gonna tell them right away they did it wrong because if I waited out, especially if it's a last minute notice and pinned on the last possible date of termination, I'll tell them after that and it's too late and they're done. There is no second chance. There is, however, there is no second chance at termination. Well, I think I'm, is my 10 minutes up? Yeah. Um, <laughs> one thing that's cool about, about the termination laws is it doesn't say you can only do it once. Mm -hmm. So if you have a 1978 sound recording or song, whatever you're terminating, and you serve notice of termination, you get it back, and you either resell it to the current, you can only resell, by the way, to the current current owner until the effective date of termination occurs. It's one more important thing. Something lobbying, lobbying by publisher said, if we get a notice of termination, we want, in effect, a first right to reacquire. So until the actual effective date, any deal made with a third party is technically void. We can talk later if there's time about what in fact happens in real life, but technically you can't reassign to a third party until the effective date occurs. But once you do reassign whoever you reassign to, you or your heirs, if you're no longer around, can terminate again 35 years later. So there is, it's, it's really um, a nice little tool if you are the content creator. And one other thing, because you have this 13-year window to file your notice, um, there are estate issues for when you might want to file those. Mm -hmm. um, if you're in a non-traditional family, for example, um, once it's filed, then that, that copyright will pass via your will, not via the state law. So it's better for you, especially if you have a non-traditional family, to file earlier because then if something happens to you, your will will govern how that uh, copyright is disposed of rather than Absolutely. the law. Okay, so now we're gonna go on to our sound recordings, compilations, or collective works. Because if they are, they're works for hire. Now, collective works, if something's a collect, if 
if they are either a collective work or a compilation, um, that would result in different outcomes. For example, a collective work is better for the uh, record label because each contribution then would be a work for hire, so you couldn't get back anything. On the other hand, if it's a compilation, that would be better for the artist because then only the, select, the selection and arrangement is copyrightable, so you could actually get back your underlying contribution, but they would still be the, uh, you know, have the compilation copyright. So the first question is, and I'm going to ask, um, do you think record labels, I mean, do you think sound recordings are compilations or collective works? I'm going to push it to Stephanie uh, to talk about the difference between collective works and compilations because we had a heated debate. Well, I didn't. Someone did uh, <laughs> uh, last night. And so I think it's worth clarifying now because that really makes a difference. And, and I want to say, too, um, it's all going to depend on which judges we get in which courts, um, how this is all decided. So I, we don't know the answers. This is all pure speculation. But um, this significant difference between compilations and collective works is this. So collective works is when you compile individually copyrightable materials. So I always like to think of it this way. If you have that book of art on your coffee table and it's, you've collected all of these photographs, right? Each of those individual photographs gets its own copyright. And so that's a collective work. And even though we call recordings compilations, you know, we call our albums compilations, that's a term of art. We're so we're talking about how does the copyright code define compilations and it's different. So any software developers in the room? So, you know, when you create software, you're not necessarily taking individually copyrighted elements into that software, but you might be taking in data or additional information. In and of itself, those things aren't copyrightable, but when you put them together, you've created potentially a compilation. That's sort of the concept, right? So um, I don't know that the court's going to come down on the difference between those two things. I think what the court's really going to look at is do we think sound recordings can fall under one of these? And I think the distinction's going to be if I am an independent um, artist. So let me use an example. I have this band right now, the Vespers. Cool kids. They raised $20,000, recorded their own album, went into the studio with their producer, and I said, hey, let's paper this, let's get contracts, and guess what they said? No, we're all friends. We'll make this happen, right? <laughs> um, so they've got this amazing album, and I think amazing things are going to happen with it. I think there are huge sync opportunities for this recording. I think that there's going to be a, a label coming after them to license the content. What they've created, I don't think, is going to fall under the work for hire definition because they created it on their own. But, but, and we're going to come to this a little bit later, here's where they may have, have fatal error, is they paid their producer, you know, a few thousand dollars to come in and make this project. I think their producer's an author. author. I think the four of them are all authors. So now we've got five authors, and when the label comes calling, and we're going to transfer this to the label, you know, 35 years from now, if it still has value, we have to go over, go to each of the four band members, right? and possibly our producer, and possibly the engineer, depending on how much of a copyrightable contribution the engineer and producer made to this project. It could be enough that they're all authors. And here's the other thing they did. They brought in this phenomenal mandolin player to lay down some of the tracks. And this amazing mandolin player, I think, might have an argument that his contributions on those specific tracks 
was also a copyrightable contribution. So you see where I'm going? So if we need more than 50% of those people who transferred that copyright to agree, and it's 35 years from now, and three of them are deceased, and we have children and grandchildren and illegitimate children, you see, see how many signatures we have to track down? So um, I say that because I think, I think the, it's, the courts are probably going to look more toward the collective work argument. I think that's going to be what's going to save the labels. Um, but, boy, it's complicated. Well, then I have, oh, you go on. But who's collective work, okay? So, yeah. so this, is, this is what mm -hmm. I, I, I think, what Stephanie's getting to is the fact that the Copyright Act does not define author, certainly not in the case of sound recordings. The only time that I found that the copyright defines author is in the case of a work for hire, in which case the employer is deemed to be the author. You're right. They assume that everyone would know who wrote the book. You know, when the, think back when the Copyright Act was, was made, there weren't sound recordings. But um, so another place where there's going to be legislation or litigation, more likely litigation first, and maybe someday we will have a definition of who is the author of the sound recording. I think the right answer is a featured artist and, and or the featured producer. Certainly if there's, it's an album of bird calls and the producer would be the guy. If it's, <laughs> if it's something where you have a featured artist and a featured producer working together, maybe both. Okay. But, but the issue for the record company is not so much that you need a majority, the issue is not that you would need a majority of all the people who possibly have an authorship claim to come together to serve notice of termination because it's unlikely that that mandolin player is going to be on the same contract with the artist or the producer and the label. Mm -hmm. Somebody's going to make the deal. So it's going to be most likely the artist. And unless the producer is hired independently by the label, the artist or the band is going to be making that deal. The issue is going to be then, can people come out of the woodwork and serve notice on the artist? And mm -hmm. if you're representing the artist, how do you protect against that? Right. I think the artist has a good argument that you are an employee for hire for the collect my collective work of my album. I don't think in this in this situation that you're describing certainly that the label can say to the artist, "You are the employee for the hire for the collective work that you delivered to me." But then, and, but then and, but, the band would have to pay, you know. And, and then, and, and then it actually. No, we're not doing the employee within the context. We're doing prong two, the, the commission. Oh, right, commission but but then we get into work. an issue. That's why I say this is really complicated because then we get into the issue of um, the law says any work except a work made for hire can be terminated. Mm -hmm. So if something like that happens, and I've seen positions written on both, good arguments on both sides, um, that if, if a piece of it is a work for hire, then the work can't be terminated, terminated at all because the definition says a work except for a work made for hire. It doesn't say you can terminate the non-work for hire part of a work. So mm -hmm. that I There's think precedent is... In so no, that's not true. There's precedent uh -huh. in songwriting. A lot of older works you might have. There's even... Um, I represent a lot of older songwriters along the way. So there's a precedent in, I think it was a, a Kern Hammerstein song, where yeah. Oscar Hammerstein and Jerome Kern, one of them, and it was, Kern was an employee for hire, or oh, Hammerstein good, was an employee for hire. And termination right runs with the author. That's well, what, so it is totally possible you can have some employees for hire on a work and some, some non-employees. And that's what I always thought, but yeah. I've read people who, um, 
experts who disagree with that. And let me make an important <laughs> distinction. So the, the scenario I just explained was independent project and then we go and we find the record deal after the fact. Um, the, the bigger issue I think that's gonna be challenged is when we sign the artist to an exclusive recording agreement or a, 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 there's a contractual agreement before we go into the studio. Right, if, if you're coming, I agree, if you're coming with an album that's pre-made, not, you know, not a work for hire. It, it's It'd probably not a work that. for hire because it's not you know specially commissioned to be made as a mm -hmm. part of a work. It's already done. Yeah, but for my guys that I was explaining, the producer issue is the potential work for hire issue, right? So outside issue. But, but okay, so I, I want to um, go back to the are they compilations or collective works, especially as we're moving into an age of singles, um, and which is a, a collective work issue. Um, if a label intends to distribute the recordings as singles, you know, can that recording be commissioned for use as a contribution to a collective work? I mean, what's the collective work if they're issuing the recording as a single? It may have worked in old times if they released only albums, but when they're releasing a recording as a single, what's the collective work it's a contribution to? Well, and the real hang-up has been that we've seen bands that say our album was a concept, co cohesive album that all these things go together necessarily that's probably the collective work situation where you have where you're saying these all go together you can't take them apart and sell them as singles we've heard about that I think that's part of this argument but but do you think and I again have seen things on both sides do you think that if it's only one artist as opposed to a tribute album like a, a Leonard Leonard Cohen tribute album where you commission one you know, one contribution from 10 different artists, and that's a contribution to a collective yeah. work. Mm -hmm. But do you think a, a work, a concept album, mm -hmm. that is all one by one artist could be a collective work? Because it's to tell a concept, and it's a... But, but the labels don't usually commission a concept album from one artist. They, right. they, the artist, the concept is the artist. Yeah, the the way most right. record deals well, work is is um, you know you're you're required to submit a certain number of masters to comprise a record. You know, and the irony is that the compilation or collective work would probably be the album, um, and the singles, the individual recordings. Um, I mean, unless you're going to say that because a bunch of musicians came in and all performed at the same time, some of it may have been copyrightable, like the lyrics and the melody, the drum beat may not have been, so mm -hmm. therefore it's a collective work unto itself. I would say the single is not. It's a copyrightable work, and then the album is a, is a collective work, which may not help the musician. Yeah. Let's hypoth hypothetically say it's a compilation, which would allow the artist to go out and sell the singles individually by themselves. They can transfer, they can, they can terminate the transfer as to the individual recordings, but not as to the album. So the record label can continue releasing the album as an album, which few people want to buy these days, and the band or the artist then has the right to sell, well, the exclusive right to sell the recording individually which has a lot more value and maybe even take the artwork back that was on the album 
because the artwork that has been, and of course, you know, unless your artist is trying to terminate your rights to the, or I'm sorry, the, the graphic <laughs> artist is trying to terminate your rights. And actually, uh, to speak to that, um, I feel like engineers and producers, mm -hmm. there's a better argument for them, th them being work for higher participants because now, uh, you know, often it is the producer who books the session and who organizes things because the artist is too drunk in the morning to figure things out. That's a, a stereotype, it's a joke. But, um, <laughs> you know, look, you're telling, hey, engineers show up here, you know? I want some more yeah, sauce on this, right. you know? Uh, yeah. Producer, you know, we're gonna hire you, we're gonna do this song, what do you think, you know? I, I actually think that's more uh, the case, uh, or more a work for hire situation than, a, than a, for a record label, although, Every one, you know, every agreement with every major, I hold up all of these agreements, which clearly proves my point, um, says that the, the label has approval over the studio. The label has approval over the producer. The label has appro approval over the, the songs. And they can knock out a recording if they, you know, Want, we want to, we don't hear a single, you know, that, that's right. because the album has been submitted, but they don't hear the single. Um, so, you know, maybe the argue, the label can argue, Hey, look, we had control. So this is a work for hire situation, not in the employee sense, but as you say, under the second prong, which under doesn't, the first prong. no, the first prong would the, be the employee that trigger taxes. Right. But the second prong would be the work for hire. Yeah. But, but the approval is under the first prong. The second prong is really specific. It says specially yeah. commissioned. You have to say in the contract, which which doesn't always happen, but will happen more and more, that it's a work that's being specially commissioned as a work for hire to a contribution from one of nine categories, mm -hmm. the only two of which we think are possibly arguable are collective work and compilation. Mm -hmm. That's not the, the approval goes to the agency test on the first prong, and that's where that Bob Marley case, which was mm -hmm. a pre-78 pre case, was I think wrongly decided, and hopefully will get appealed, but I don't know. On, on the level of control that the that the label had under the employee hope. test. What? <laughs> I said I certainly hope so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But but that was a I mean and, and the court was clear that that does not apply to um, to not just not just the timing pre seventy, but that doesn't apply to 203 or 304 terminations. It only applies to terminations under the old copyright law. Right. Because that was a New York case that basically that said... Was, it wasn't a termination case. It was a dying in the first term case. Yes. Yeah. And <laughs> so, that's, another, that's another panel. <laughs> so... Um, uh, so I, you know, in my mind, I, one of the one of the issues then, I mean, the label may say, "Hey, look, no, this is all you, we we you know, you're supposed to deliver an album. The contract says you deliver deliver an album. It's an album. It's not a compilation. It's an album." And the artist is going to say, "Well, actually, it says ten masters to comprise an album." And you know, the reality is, it's I mean. It's not really like that. If you submit 10 masters, they have to be technically and commercially satisfactory, even if, even if commercially satisfactory isn't the standard in the agreement. Record labels won't put it out if they don't hear the right song. So they could say, hey, go back and record some more. And then it's like, well, okay, does that make it more of a compilation or less of a compilation? Because obviously, you know, uh, it's not a work if you want me to replace some of it. It must be a compilation where you want me to replace some of this right. track. And yeah. like collective work also when you say you're bringing a whole album, I mean a collective work is, and there are some examples given in the definition, a periodical and anthology, an encyclopedia, separate and independent works assembled into a whole, and what what the language is talking about is when you know I as, cre as publisher am saying, you do this, you do this, you do this, to make it all a whole. Whereas if somebody comes and brings me the whole, 
one one artist, I think that's less likely to be a collective. Look, world. a label will mm -hmm. argue. Maybe. We we told them we're not going to include this track. We organize reorganize the tracks. Mm -hmm. We ask them to deliver another track. But I don't think that that makes it a collective work um, any more than a book publisher who. Rearranges chapters, right, takes right. out chapters, mm -hmm. says, "Can you give us, you know, put another? We need another chapter in here." I think that, you know, let's just put this in perspective. Right now, everybody's freaking out because the labels are now faced with something that publishers have been faced with for many, many years, and. You know, they survived it, and frankly, from the point of view of watching what happens in the industry, it promotes new deals being made. This stuff comes right. out again. It, it's it's not such a terrible thing. Can you talk about, because um, that was actually one of the first things I wanted to talk about, is if you could talk about how it's worked for publishers who have been terminating under the, you know, 78 Act since... 78. Since, since, right. Since, since 78. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. And I, I think, well, in the beginning, it was, it just cost the publishers a little money. In the beginning, um, they'd go to, you know, go back to the artist, uh, to the songwriter and say, you know, we've taken care of you for all these years. Just sign here. Here's another $20,000. Here's another. And people just re-signed on the same lousy terms. Um, which in those days was the 50-50, 50 to the publisher, 50 to the songwriter, was basically no approvals or anything like that. Over time, there have been some creative deals done where people have gone to co-publishing deals where they've given the artist basically half of the copyright, I mean, their songwriter half of the copyright back for a larger share, moving on to administration deals or reacquisitions either by that publisher or by a different publisher for if you went back about, you know, to the 2000 and even a little beyond, very, very hefty price deals, even as much as 20, or in the case of Lieber and Stoller, purportedly, I did not represent them. I just heard this 23 multiple of the average earnings over the past five years. Um, everything plummeted with everything else a couple of years ago, and now you're looking at multiples more in the eight to, eight to 10 range, climbing back to 10, it was low as six and seven. But it's worked, basically. Publishers have never, no publisher has tanked because of terminations. Mm -hmm. They've lost some, they've reacquired some of what they've lost, and they've made up for it by acquiring other stuff. It has definitely benefited the people who know about it, and because it's so convoluted, can afford to get some advice about it, unfortunately, mm -hmm. in terms of able to re, being able to renegotiate crummy deals that they made when they were happy to get the deal. If that's true for songwriters, imagine imagine how much truer that will be for artists who really gave away the ship to get those early records out. That's what Congress was trying to protect. That's the reason for termination. It has not made an industry go under. I would maintain that the record industry, which is in big trouble now, grasping on this as a last straw, is in so much trouble because when the internet started happening, they were too greedy and didn't get together with the rest of the industry on trying to effectively come together to a way to monitor police and make licensing more accessible so people didn't feel that things would be better off in the public domain. If licensing were simple, you'd have to pay for, you'd have to pay for it, but you wouldn't have to go to three or four or five different places to pay for it. I think that we wouldn't be in the situation we're in today. Okay, I have one final question before I know we're gonna then go to questions for the audience. And it's about international copyright treaty obligations. 
the U.S. is a signatory to the WIPO Performances and Phonograms Treaty, which requires that we give performers certain rights, rights, you know, rights to reproduction, rights to distribution, rights to making available, things like that. Have you thought, I, I would like your opinion on how, if, if sound recordings are works for hire, would we be in compliance with our international obligations and how would we be in compliance with those obligations? Uh, well, for one, foreign rights aren't terminable. Pardon? F foreign rights are not terminable. Only your U.S. transfers. Right. So um, I haven't no. thought about this. This is whether, yeah. No, I know. Yeah. But so that's why I haven't really thought about that part that as the next part of the question. Yeah, I mean, just does it make us in compliance, or does it take us out of compliance? And I would—I don't think so. I mean, right. I think Stephanie's right. The termination is not and uh, rec internationally right. It's recognized that termination rights are available in the United States, but it's not an. No, but my question goes to: We've signed a treaty where we where we're obligated to give performers certain rights. Right. right. So if and if, the if, if they're holds, never an author yeah. because the the copyright law does define the one time it defines author is in work for hire and right. it says the employer. the employer is the author ab initio mm -hmm. which it says specifically in the law where would we be giving performers the rights that we're obligated to give them under the treaty i right. think we're probably yeah. not not in compliance that's my good <laughs> <laughs> i don't I think, think that I think saves china's us china's going to sanction us <laughs> <laughs> But so, I want to mention too, because I, I want to make this clear. Songs are probably terminable, um, but songs that are created for film, so like if I'm hired to create a soundtrack for film, probably not terminable, or even an individual track hired to create it for the film, but licensed to film, I, we don't know the answer, but Li pro licensed to film, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> License to film terminable, but the yeah. film is a derivative work. Right. So the they can continue to use the song in that film, but if there's a remake or a sequel, they would need a new license. They that's, cannot use it. That's an so important thing to, to know. If something yeah. is licensed, licensed to make a derivative work, even once you terminate the transfer, any licensed derivative works can continue to be exploited. So if you like give yeah. your, assuming that the artist's record delivered to the label, is not a work for hire. They can terminate, get that back. If the label, however, has taken a cut from that album and put it on a compilation album, that compilation album might be a derivative work of the original. So the compilation album could continue to be exploited even though the original album went back. And or the they license it to a movie. They can still, you're, you're not right. saying that they can't ever show the movie anymore. And the publisher can still continue to collect their share of that revenue for that license. Yes. yes. So yes, That's and the, and the label. Yep. Something also, share. you know, pertinent to, to publishers is I, I believe um, that if uh, someone issued a mechanical license for an album, then the publisher can continue co to collect from that album, even if all the rights have reverted That's, to the artist a, of the song and yeah. of the right. album. Yeah, right. same concept. Yeah, yeah. But, but a motion picture is one of those nine categories. I mean, right. That's critical. Right. So a contribution so a motion picture. That's yes. Okay, I think. We're, we're time for questions. It's my watch. Hi. I have um, pre and post 78 copyrights that uh, have not been terminated mm -hmm. by the artist past the period. How long would you consider those copyrights that, um, enforceable? What would you do to keep, make sure that they're enforceable? Would you re register any of them? 
Are you talking about um, the sound recordings? Sound recordings. Okay, so if pre seventy eight, pre and post, pre and post. Okay, so the pre seventy eight from seventy two through seventy seven, you don't have to re-register if the copyright was registered. That copyright will endure for ninety five years. Well, or life if it's not a work for higher life no, of the author. No, pre seventy eight is ninety five years. Even for these songs. are sound recordings. I'm sorry, these are yes, sound recordings. Pre seventy eight, before nineteen seventy eight, the term of copyright for things registered before nineteen seventy eight is a flat term of ninety five years. From from seventy eight on, it's life of the last author to die plus seventy years. You don't have to register it. In fact, there's no registration requirement. It's only to perfect a claim. Once it's registered, it's registered. Question though. If there are 30 authors of that sound recording, because we don't define authors as a featured artist, <laughs> mm -hmm. whose life does it endure past? <laughs> it could really go on a long time. But at least I would look at your featured artist and say, I have this, it's protected till 70 years after the last person to die. Or if there's bad law and it turns out that sound recordings are considered eventually to be works for hire, then it would be at least a flat term of 95 years from creation. Mm -hmm. But, but those works might be terminable. I think that was your question. No, his question was, does he have to re-register them? Exactly. Oh, okay. <clears throat> uh, so then that would mean, would, would they then enter the public domain? After, after, after the life plus 70 or the 95 years, they would enter the public domain. Which also brings up an important point. I've had some lawyers get this wrong with, that I've worked with, that the, the timetable for terminations is day-date specific, whereas the term of copyright goes to the end of the calendar yes. year. Yeah. So that's an important distinction to make because you can be a few days off and be in serious trouble. Well, if it's, you can be on termination, but if it's the end of, end of the copyright year, you know, it, yeah. it is. But if you take cuts from that album and you put it into something that's a new album, then that will continue for life plus 70 or 95 years, depending on whether it turns out to have been a work for hire or not. So copyright, the, the length of copyright, life plus 70, unless it's a work for hire, in which case it's a flat term of 95 years. And you don't have to register again. I had handouts printed, but I haven't seen them anywhere. They might be upstairs on the table. I have no idea. But. Um, yeah, because these yeah. go through all the timelines, and because you know they're very specific, and there's this 13-year window, and her handouts will say when it starts and when it ends, because, you know, uh, on termination, you snooze, you lose. You know, it doesn't happen. In Canada, it happens automatically, but after the death oh, of the author, great. 25 years after the death of the author. I have some automatically. here as well. This is a different handout, but it might be useful. Sometimes I need to see things two different ways. <laughs> okay. Question back? Yeah, I have a question back here, sorry. <laughs> so you've talked about the implications of termination for derivative works in the nine classes, so for films and things like that. What about in the case of new licenses of catalogs or other services that are going on now, MOG, radio, Spotify, things like that, when those licenses are made for short periods of time, mm -hmm with a label, say, for a catalog, and some sort of termination behavior happens during the time the license you know, is covered, and then the license is over, um, will those services then start have to now to go find all of these reverted owners in the attempt to sort of relicense the same catalog? And the other, that's question one. Question two is, is the Copyright Office capable of handling the flood of new registrations or other things <laughs> that might happen in the wake of these sorts of things.
things. Well, there aren't when 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 a termination happens. There's no copyright. Uh, the copyright office activity is the filing of the notice of termination and the recordation of the notice. There is no re-registration after that. It's the, a different party starts to claim. So yes, if that license expires and you want to do a new license, you'd have to go to the person who has reclaimed the rights. Generally, you go to your original licensee and they say, we no longer have that, go to, go to Anne. Um, it's not gonna be a big mystery because you can even search the Copyright Office online now. It's not great, but you can do <laughs> search it online and find the notice of termination, which will have a party in it. And if your original licensee won't help you out, you can find it that way. Um, but there's no, it's no, it won't be any more of a copyright office flood than you know we have certainly going on with termination notices being filed every day. One would think in the song, song, in the area. song area. But I, I think that might be a good question because um, when we license content to these services, that's not a derivative work. No. So it's not subject no. to the derivative work exemption. So possibly you could have songs suddenly not be fall under that license during the term. Yeah, but but hopefully they wouldn't want that to happen. But no. it, maybe you it'll just be an issue. It's, it's, it's who do you pay? It's who do you pay? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, basically, you know, I think there's a certain when if I was representing someone, representing someone who terminated, I'd want to try and find out. Hopefully, you know, what licenses are out there, and maybe right. you contact and say, "Don't pay them, pay me," and then you, mm -hmm. you know, have to just make sure that you're not going to get caught between the parties, but. And you have to remember, you know, this may sound like, oh, it's going to turn everything topsy-turvy, but songs have been doing this for, you know, since 78, and this has been going on on a daily basis with the underlying composition, and things work still. And, and what society, sorry, David, yeah. just one thing, but what societies do is if, they, if there are competing claims, someone says, I terminated, now you pay me, ASCAP or BMI or CSEC, and, and someone else says, no, their termination was wrong, don't pay them, keep paying us. What ASCAP will do is they'll just keep the money keep and the say, money. tell us when you figure it out. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I would say the same thing should be done for services if there's that kind of dispute. We'll mm -hmm. put the money in the bank and somebody, when you guys work it out, we'll pay yeah, we'll the figure it out. right person. I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, in 78, when this was passed, I mean, Congress we, artists had no way of disseminating their work themselves. I mean, they really didn't. And I've, I've heard arguments that this was really just a, you know, meant to, to prompt renegotiations to get more money into the artist's pocket because maybe they have some perceived leverage. Um, but the reality is, and, and maybe Congress was so prescient to realize that technology would advance, although I doubt that, <laughs> because like touch-tone phones with the be all and all at that point, you know. Um, the reality is it's just not that hard. You know, you, you sign up with a distributor and, and, you know, a few months later, you're probably back where you were. Now, for the music services, obviously recataloging everything is going to be a challenge and, and just sussing things out. But um, hopefully not that big a deal. I mean, it's going to be the same name, the same artist. It's going to be the same ISDN number, I'd imagine, the same copyright number if that was included. So right. it shouldn't be that big a deal. Um, and, I mean, again, this might have gone in ways that Congress didn't intend, but it certainly does give a lot of power back to artists, especially since, as it was mentioned, the only value here is for valuable legacy artists, right? And um, ironically, that's where labels make all their money now, um, and not from album sales of them. Generally, I would think it'd be single sales. So I, I actually think this will put a wrench in the, the record label business 
maybe not the music business, but the record labels, the majors, they're really going to get a hit because they're going to have to deal with uh, administering all this stuff and, and just dealing with it, which is not easy. Uh, and they actually have to do it, whereas you can string along a negotiation for years on a long form, which often happens. But, you know, there's, de there's dates here. You've got to respond. You've got to do things. Um, and, uh, and, I mean, you, you tack this on with the whole license versus, you know, uh, uh, sale question of iTunes. You know, this is certainly not the discussion here. But these are all big deals that the, the larger selling artists who tend to be older artists are all coming to the labels with. And this could be the perfect storm that, you know, nobody's talking about. But it's hard to see how... Hey, some artists are going to be like, yeah, I want my copyright back. I don't want to renegotiate and take another advance. I want my rights back, and, and I want to put them up through, you know, whomever. Um, so it could be heavy. Hello. Tess Taylor here from the National Association of Record Industry Professionals. Great panel. Thank you. And what do you guys charge to represent creators to... No, seriously. I mean, what are we talking about? Hourly rates, approximate rates, when you're talking about a body of work versus a single work. I mean, this can't be cheap, but it's very important. And a lot of creators are going to be in the position to want to hire you guys. Well, huh? I'm in Nashville, so I'm probably more affordable than anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have because I can buy a house for $100,000. Um, but um, I, it depends. I do some flat rate work depending on the client, but most of this stuff has to be hourly because a lot of times I'm sort of a CSI music industry. I'm going to have to go back and do some forensic analysis to figure out what rights and dates and all of that. It takes a lot of time. I think the answer is that um, whoever you whoever one hires to do this work should be someone who has a lot of expertise in the termination area so they're not spending your time learning it mm -hmm. and they should have the capacity to have people at a varying it's, it's almost always hourly work mm -hmm. unless it's a huge catalog and then there might be some kind of you know able ability to sort of do it in a more of a bulk way but I think there are people that have um, the capacity to have the experienced attorney look at the contracts and do that analysis and then a junior attorney or a paralegal who's trained in this area do the actual serving of termination notices and that sort of thing because you don't want to be paying somebody $500 an hour to fill out a termination notice and you're getting ripped off. And I'll so, say this, there's a lot of entertainment people who shouldn't do this work because they don't have the time or energy or expertise. What percentage so. then of your practice is dealing with termination? Right now it's probably a third of mine. I would say that's at least 50% or more, both on the, on, on not just doing them, but on the analytic end on both sides. Mm -hmm. I'd say it depends on the age of your clients. You know, we have some clients we've had these issues and others not because they're just, you know, they've released works more recently. So, you know, I, I mean, anyone, I, I, it would sh I would imagine it'd be hourly and you just shop around to your attorney, but you, you obviously it needs to be done right. And I would think this is a little more specialized than, than the normal, like, hey, I'm an entertainment lawyer. I know people at Atlantic, you know, because mm -hmm. there's a lot of dots to, to, to dot, mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah, and this is something where, um, you know, the expertise of people who have a history representing songwriters in this area, um, you know, they may not normally do necessarily recording work, but recordings are new to termination, so you may want to look to somebody who's done them before, which would mean somebody represents songwriters. I mean, most people represent most. I don't know yeah. anyone who mm -hmm. just does songwriters, although in Nashville, maybe. It's all songwriters in Nashville. The, the no, corner no, no, no. attorney. 
<laughs> He's busking for songwriter deals. My question, and this is, I think, going back a little bit to the beginning, is are there issues where in the contract, I, I'm thinking of like bands and that they may have formed some sort of corporate form when they signed their contracts. So the authorship may be masked by that corporate form as opposed to the individual. Fantastic, fantastic question. Mm -hmm. here's, here's where my anti-work-for-hire um, heart hits the wall because I think that many artists, and I can't believe we didn't get to this before, thank you so much, may have screwed themselves through, through their loan-out deals. Mm -hmm. yes. Because while the deal between the loan-out and the label may not be a work-for-hire deal, if an, if an artist that. or band has a loan-out company that they contract with and assign their and, and do their work for as the employee of that loan out and they're doing it for very real reasons. They're getting tax benefits, they're getting their investment plan, they're getting their health insurance through that loan out company. That very well may be a work for hire deal with their own company. They assign rights to the company, the company sign the company signs rights to the label. The label, in effect, is the grantee in the place of the, of the loan out, and therefore, if the label gets a, a notice, a termination notice from the artist, the label may absolutely be 100% right if they say, sorry, work for hire, you did the work for your loan out. Right. Now, does it matter? I mean, most, most out record deals have the artist signing individually, even if there's a loan out, either you know, by an inducement paragraph, yeah. Um, and in that case, is that the same situation where you're personally, because I mean, like no label wants to be signed to a, a, any corporation. They're going to make you guarantee performance. They always, always Does do. that go around that? Or, and what if you're not getting insurance from your work, from Again, loan out? It, you know? it may be a case by case basis. Maybe right. if the loan out's not really a corporation, it's more of a DBA or, or right, you know, right. you're not getting insurance, really, you're not getting taxes withheld. Yeah. You yeah. Have yeah. Look at, it's going to look to all the you're other gonna, issues yeah. about right. which taxes. You get into problem one. And you're not so in the, the bigger the band, the more screwed you are. Because most loan outs right. are kind right. of shot. <laughs> you know, they don't so, want to so do So you're that. in prong one, yeah. which is, are, were you acting as an employee within exactly. the course of your right, employee, right, employment, right. but not with the label, with the loan out? The yeah, fact that someone point. signs as an inducement, I don't think would be enough. I mean, that's the like belt right. and suspenders, just like if you might have, right. have their, you know, their spouse sign in. It's not necessary. You know, you know but it's, uh, I think producers may be, if I can use the word screwed, a little more in there. Because a lot of producers use loan outs. Yep. It's easy. Yes, you're right. Um, whereas Bands, I mean, look, a band will sign it with a loan out, uh, to a producer uh, uh, via a loan out corporation. They're like, look, he's going to do it, you know. But labels do not want to sign to a loan out corporation because they really want the individual signs. So, I mean, just by custom, maybe that'll end up it weighing could. somewhere. Yeah. yeah interesting. The loan out corp, if it's still owned by the same artists, send in the notice of termination. But then because the, the work was still so, created so this, as a work for hire. Oh, right. Got the work idea. was, and there, right. there was. There's still an author. That's yeah. a good point. So now isn't the loan out the author? No. No, yeah, but, but it's a work because, made because, for hire, so right, it's not. There's, there's no, no author. Behind, there's no ah, author. Right, so, right. So here's what maybe could work. That. Maybe the loan, <laughs> maybe in advance of termination, you have the loan out and the artist revoke their deal and <laughs> have all rights. I'm serious. I mean, you got to get creative here. Have all rights assigned back from the loan out to the artist. I don't can know if it would fight? work. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and then, uh, <laughs> maybe they can all hire lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all. Thank, Thank you, you all very much. much. <laughs> That'll be the last.